Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. It's Thursday, December 14th, 2023 from Peachfish Productions. It's The Gist. I'm Mike Pasca. A Washington, D.C. jury is deliberating in the case of Rudy Giuliani defaming two Georgia election workers. Giuliani's culpability is not in question. The judge has already found him liable for damages. The question is how much, and that's for the jury to decide. Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss are seeking $24 million apiece. When Freeman and Moss's attorney described Giuliani as being patient zero, to which one can trace back all the harassment and threats the pair received, Giuliani's lawyer had a counterphrase. No, not patient zero. He was, quote, patient deep pockets. Giuliani, a former courtroom bulldog and well-regarded communicator in his time, must have thought, this is the lawyer I can afford? Giuliani himself did not testify, as was his right, but possibly not his want, here he was after court on Monday. When I testify, you'll get the whole story, and it will be definitively clear that what I said was true. After being admonished for characterizing as truthful statements the judge has already ruled to be defamatory, Giuliani took a more mm, coy position on testifying when asked about it after court yesterday. Well, yesterday you said the truth would come out, so is this a change from yesterday? You should, we're not over yet. Uh, All right. Well, you nice guys. We'll see you tomorrow. I said, "Excuse me, excuse the truth me." Truth will come out. The truth will come out. I didn't say when, so it will come out, and it will come out very, very shortly. It's been three years. Two at 8 p.m. tonight. 8 p.m. Okay. Thank you. But nothing. Nothing. I'm not going to comment on the courtroom. That was a member of his legal team you hear in the background saying, in the manner of a world-weary New York cop, "Okay, folks, show's over." But Giuliani clung to the attention. He did not stop answering questions. He couldn't. This is, after all, all he has. He must wonder how Trump dissembles and contradicts judges and only rises in acclaim as he, former New York City mayor, is laid low first by Borat and then two lowly election workers who he would once dismiss as he did squeegee men or the police shooting victim of whom he said he's no altar boy, when in fact Patrick Doris Mond was literally an altar boy. Went to the same high school as Giuliani, in fact. Giuliani is somehow held to account and forced to face consequences for lies, even chastened by judges successfully. Oh, how he must rue the unfairness of his fate, of having to actually liquidate assets to pay, however sporadically, his legal bills. Somehow, the former federal prosecutor and champion of law and order actually is affected and encumbered by the law of gravity, while his former client, the former president, is not unfair. Giuliani did not testify at his trial. His lawyer, in a phrase more felicitous than patient deep pockets, explained of the two defendants that Giuliani defamed, quote, we feel like these women have been through enough. On the show today, a claim of organ harvesting leads to a contemplation of the concept of 
homonationalism. What's that? But first, the theory of proportionality or disproportionality in war is not necessarily what it may sound like to the ear. The Israelis have killed many, many more civilians than Hamas did. But that alone is not how disproportionality is calculated. Here to discuss how it is calculated, even if it is a calculation, is Ben Wittes, a contemplation of the legal and ethical aspects of disproportionality in war, up next. I'm here to tell you about one of the most attractive automobiles you're ever going to lay your eyes on. And it's not just how good it looks, it's everything that can do. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with thoroughly modern design. The exterior, which won me over, is reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing. The interior is built with integrity using the most robust of materials. The Defender capability is legendary, whether you're facing off-road challenges or harsh weather conditions. The Defender 110 lets you go further and do more. Cargo capacity means you got room for your gear. To drive the Defender is to do what you do via your intellect, via your passions in life. It is to explore with greater confidence. Ready for a wide range of adventures? The Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, the Defender 130 that seats up to eight. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. I'm Dr. Megan Sachs. And I'm Dr. Amy Sloshberg. And we're the host of the podcast Campus Killings. Our show covers some of the most sinister crimes to take place on or around school campuses. Or the cases we discuss have a school-connected theme. And with the new school year comes an all-new second season of Campus Killings, which will debut on September 16th, 2023. But if you want to listen to Campus Killings now, you can binge all the episodes from season one. Available everywhere you listen to podcasts. So far in Gaza, there are approximately 15,000 or more dead. This comes from the Hamas Ministry of Health. Actually, that's the way they used to always say it in the popular press, the Hamas Ministry of Health. And they began dropping the Hamas and just crediting the numbers to the Ministry of Health. But if you've paid attention, you know where the numbers come from. However, those numbers, at least in the past, have basically comported with Israel and UN numbers. But here's the point. Even if there is a margin of error of 25, 40%, it is still an astounding number. It is still an atrocious number. But is it an atrocity? The number of Israeli dead and Palestinian or Gazan dead is not in proportion, but is it disproportionate? And that's what we're going to talk about. The legal, but also the moral terms of disproportionality in war. Joining me is Benjamin Wittes, who is the editor-in-chief of Lawfare and senior fellow in governance studies at the Brookings Institution. He's joined me before, a friend. Um, And I did tweet out an article he wrote in 2015 that I think is something of the most authoritative analysis of proportionality. And it was about a past Israel military campaign. Ben, welcome back to The Gist. Thanks. And don't let me leave without telling you the story of what happened to me the day that I wrote that article. 
Interesting. Okay, good. That's a marker uh, and also a tease for the end of this conversation. So are we misled by the fact that there is the colloquial phrase proportionality, and that means keeping things in proportion, but there is also the legal concept using the same term. And is that more confusing than clarifying that these things really mean different things? Yeah, they mean entirely different things. And um, yes, it is confusing because when you, uh, as a reasonable person, say the word proportional or disproportional, uh, disproportionate, uh, you're actually making a legal, uh, you're actually making a moral judgment about uh, um, something that may or may not comport with the legal judgment that the word also conveys. And so, you know, when law of armed conflict people use the word proportionate, they are using a term of art that means certain things and more importantly, doesn't mean certain things. What doesn't it mean? Well, so for example, one thing that, that proportionality does not mean is you say, hey, 1,200 Israelis got killed on October 7th and there are uh, 140 or so on, some odd uh, is current Israeli hostages, and there are 15,000 or so Palestinian dead, the majority of whom seem to be civilians. That's disproportionate. That is not a legal statement. That's a moral statement. Um, and and but because proportionality is an essential concept in the law of armed conflict to decide whether something is a war crime, we that confusion tends to impute uh, criminality to behavior that might simply be uh, actually not only lawful, but protected under the laws, law of armed conflict. Right. So, so of the three forms, one is the proportionality of power between the parties. That's not going to cause ipso facto a war crime. Obviously, Israel's a lot more powerful than Hamas. Then there's the proportionality of at the ratio of civilians versus military casualties. This does come up. Then there is incident-specific retroactivity, which is another form of uh, proportionality. But I think so far, what we're focused on, what the uh, average man or woman who is concerned with this is focused on is just that, the proportionality of casualties between the sides. I know there is no strict formula. I know there is no loose formula. But do numbers become involved at any point in this uh, actual legal calculation? Yes, but they're not aggregate gross numbers. They're so the, the critical thing to understand about the difference between law of armed conflict proportionality and colloquial proportionality is that law of armed conflict proportionality is incident-specific, and it's a prospective analysis, not a retrospective analysis. So let me break this down in a, in a fashion that's a little bit less uh, you know, verbally annoying. Um, so <laughs> not not how you look, not how you spin the spin the yarn. When 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 we look at um, a, a a strike, we look at and let let's take some stri- examples that happened in Gaza. Right, you have an, a a strike against a refugee camp that looks like an enormous number of civilians were killed, and we really don't know what the military gain was from that. 
Uh, and so you look at it and you say, oh, my God, that's horrible. And by the way, my guess is if there was an Israeli war, if there has been things that we would, we would want to investigate as potential war crimes or potential violations of the law on conflict, that's, that incident is going to be incident number one. Mm-hmm. That said, if you're looking at it from a law of armed conflict standpoint, you don't get to say that strike killed a lot of civilians, therefore it is a war crime. You have to look at it prospectively from the point of view of the commander or the person who authorized the strike. And you have to ask a set of questions uh, that don't include how badly did things turn out. The concept of proportionality dictates that If you are contemplating a strike, you have to weigh the anticipated military gain against the anticipated loss of of non-combatant life, i.e. civilian harm, and that the the civilian harm, anticipated civilian harm, cannot be disproportionate to the expected military gain of the particular strike. So hearing that, I have to say that as we get deeper into the definition, it does get more detailed. Um, and what you just said about the anticipated proportional gain, understood, not the first blanche uh, definition of whatever proportionality might mean. But that definition itself is far from tangible. I don't know how meaningful it is. Well, so remember that the the function of the law of armed conflict is not to prevent bad things from happening. No, no, no. It is the law. It is the law of armed conflict is not to outlaw armed conflict. Exactly. <laughs> yes. It is to prevent intentional atrocities or atrocities that um, uh, could be avoided by you know very basic considerations of human life, and so the. We who want, you know, antiseptic war, right, that kills the bad guys and doesn't kill the good guys, um, uh, there's a, there's a, you know, have a problem with a law that accepts a high degree of injury to civilians, you know, and we, we have a moral problem with that. And that is why militaries, at least good rule of law militaries, adopt all kinds of policies that keep them away from the legal lines, which is why often the moral line, the, the, the moral analysis and the legal analysis actually should be different because the legal analysis is quite permissive. Right. So first of all, I want to establish, when you went to Israel, uh, all of your studying of this, you uh, believe that it is sincere that Israel it believes that they are not only applying uh, or adhering to the letter of the law, but they are, in fact, in doing so, acting in a moral manner. Yeah, I, 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 would, I would state it this way. They, you know, if you had one of the IDF lawyers who writes rules of engagement um, here, what he or she would tell you is, um, we go so far beyond the law of armed conflict. Um, now, this is pre-October 7th. We should talk about what's changed since October 7th. We go so far beyond the law of armed conflict. You know, we do things that, you know, make your uh, judge advocate general's spines tingle with concern that they might come to be expected. And they mean all this shit. It's totally sincere. Um, and by the way, most of it's true. 
Um, and that's not a moral comment on whether they're doing enough. I'm, I'm just saying most of what they describe, they describe what they do and it's true what they do. And so a lot of it is genuinely extraordinary. Um, they, they have never figured out um, how to, and it may be because it's impossible, and it may be because they just haven't tried hard enough. They've never figured out how to do close urban fighting uh, using a lot of air power because they don't want to reoccupy, or at least they traditionally haven't wanted to reoccupy Gaza. And uh, Hamas is super dug in uh, in the civilian population, which, of course, is going to have to change. Now, I'm using the terms precisely here. That's going to change your proportionality analysis. And so the result is that they often have a relatively aggressive, even as they take all these steps, a relatively aggressive sense of what uh, a tolerable level of civilian casualties is because they don't perceive that they have a choice. And so they'll do all these things to warn people, which, you know, a lot of other places don't do. And, you know, they do... I mean, they do some crazy stuff like dropping uh, munitions on uh, small, very tiny munitions on the roof of buildings. It's called yeah. a knock on the roof yep. um, to get people out of the building. And then you hit the building sort of two minutes later. They, they you know, do these cell phone calls to uh, large numbers of people saying, get out of this target. You know, they, they'll, they, they really do do extraordinary things. And yet they will also tolerate proportional rates of ratio, proportionality ratios that particularly after October 7th, you know, a lot of other militaries won't do. And they will do that because they don't perceive that they have a, a choice given the degree to which Hamas is dug in with the civilian population. Yeah. So you said, you just said just now and before, the Israelis have not figured out a way to engage in close building-to-building -building, uh, fighting in an urban setting. No one has. The United States didn't in Mosul. Uh, the Syrians certainly didn't care to, but didn't in Aleppo. But then you also laid over, and this is very important, using airstrikes. Now, there is an argument, and maybe we could talk about the portion of uh, proportionality that deals with discrimination. There is an argument, and I wonder how sympathetic you are to it, that there are airstrikes and there are 2,000 pound bombs. If you use some of these very heavy bombs that Israel has used in Gaza, that is all we need to know. That's not using proper discrimination, and that's a violation of disproportionality. What do you think? Well, so first of all, separate the, the proportionality from the discrimination. Um, they're separate concepts. Discrimination means you have to discriminate. You have to distinguish between the military official who is a lawful target and right. the civilian who is not. But, but the point and is a 2,000 bomb can't do that. No, no. So I, I think Israel is quite vulnerable on this point. And so why is it illegal, you know, not not illegal, but disfavored in an extreme sense to use a nuclear weapon? And the answer is because it is inherently not discriminating, right? And um, now it also may be, dis it would also in almost all circumstances be disproportionate in the sense that you would kill 
but but the main point of the the main point is that if you simply carpet bomb an area and you're not making individualized distinctions about what the right weapon to use in a particular circumstance, then you have a distinction problem. And that may, that distinction problem may also give rise to a proportionality problem. But look, on, the, on, on some of those strikes, uh, particularly at the refugee camp, where they used a 2,000 pound bomb, pound bomb, I want to know why. And, yes. um, and those, as I said at the beginning, that, that strike is the one that I look at and say, oof, if there's going to be a, a proportionality, and you're right, also a discrimination law of war analysis that m- may look at that prospectively and say, why the fuck did you use a 2,000-pound bomb? Uh, that one's going to be, uh, I, I, I'm concerned about that one. Mm-hmm. How does justice ever come? Um, and uh, we can take it to talk about historically. Has Israel been brought up before uh, international council on war crimes charges? And could they after after this? So uh, Israel is not a party to the ICC, um, but the Palestinians are. Yeah. And so the ICC uh, might purport to want to get involved. Um, the international there are basically court, three yeah. or four ways that war crimes issues come up. By far the most common is uh, uh, rule of law countries prosecute their own people for war crimes. Uh, second way, sometimes, you know, the so the Ukrainians are currently have on trial some Russians that they're accusing of war crimes, right? So another way, this is the sort of Nuremberg model, right? You, you capture the other side and you reserve the right to try them for war crimes. This is why the word dis, dis, uh, using the terms properly is so important. As a general matter, a soldier for the other side has what's called combat immunity. You're not allowed to try them, you know, for shooting your people unless it's a war crime. When you use words that imply war crimes to describe things that may just reflect moral discomfort, you're actually suggesting that there are criminal remedies for this that may really not exist. The third possibility is, you know, international tribunals of one sort or another, which, you know, we we just talked about in terms of the Israelis have extreme suspicion of these entities and will generally not yield up their people for trial elsewhere. And the the fourth, which is a, a you know problematic one, both from the Israeli point of view and for for the from the U.S. point of view, is assertions of universal jurisdiction by countries, right? And so you know uh, you know you get calls for um, this was a big deal when Ariel Sharon was still alive, and you would have you know investigations of of whether he may have committed war crimes while he was prime minister um, or while, while he was defense minister during the Lebanon war. And that would you know, raise the question of could the Israeli prime minister travel to certain countries, right? And this is also an issue with U.S. service personnel as well. Yeah. There are definitely U.S. generals who've had and CIA personnel who've had, you know, who have lists of countries that they 
would be ill-advised to travel to. Yes. By the way, uh, Israel, not a signatory of the International Criminal Court, but the United States Congress uh, failed to approve that as per our constitutional imperatives. Um, If it is the case that it's what is known at the time by the country or entity carrying out the strikes. Is the specific is, soldier. Yes. Is Israel incentivized not to know as much as they can know? Well, so, yeah. So the question of the incentives are really, really difficult here. So first of all, when you dig in um, as Hamas, you there's a that is a war crime actually a, a standalone you know if you're lo- locating firing out of civilian objects um, and endangering surrounding yourself with civilians that is a war crime because we do not want to as a world and more of this interview so much more with the estimable Ben Wittes you know I don't want to blow up Ben's spot but he is a subscriber to Pesca Plus. Ben can hear himself speak on the extended interviews that we play with very interesting guests. If you just want to hear the show without ads, that's available for Pesca Plus subscribers too. And there's also an ad-free option. You can enjoy all of this. Ah, it's the holidays. Take 11% off. Use the code BELGIUM at checkout. Subscribe.mikepesca.com. There's also an option there to buy gifts for friends and loved ones or even liked ones. Subscribe.mikepesca.com slash gifts to find out more of that. Of course, Belgium with a capital B at checkout. And now the spiel. The other day, the presidents of UPenn, Harvard, and MIT were offering congressional testimony for the ages, more dark in stone than enlightenment, And Republicans assembled reporters to hear from Jewish students at those three schools. The student from MIT talked of the anti-Semitism she experienced on campus, but then offered a detail that stuck with me. After a postdoc at MIT said that Jewish Israelis want to enslave the world in a global apartheid system, he falsely claimed that Israel harvests Palestinian organs and implied that the, quote, average Israeli is a Nazi. The DEI officer of his department replied by telling us that nothing he said was hate speech and that the organ harvesting conspiracy theory was, quote, confirmed. Poor interpretations of speech codes or failures to take seriously threats to Jewish students in a way that differs from threats received by other students, that falls under the rubric of in loco parentis, providing for the safety of students. But decreeing that it's a fact that Israel harvests the organs of Palestinians, that falls under the heading of information, and it would seem incorrect information. Well, it might have struck me as such, but I did a little research, and it turns out that a Swedish newspaper revealed that in the 1990s, Israel had a policy of donating, well, not donating, there was no permission, taking the organs of accident victims and giving them to people in need of organ transplants, and they did this without proper notification or permission of next of kin. They didn't notify Jewish next of kin, presumably Druze next of kin, the next of kin of foreign workers, but yes, Palestinian next of kin. The head of a forensic institute who worked there at the time told the documentary crew, quote, we started to harvest corneas 
Whatever was done was highly informal. No permission was asked from the family. And then the corneas, but also heart valves, bone, and skin that went to a skin bag for burn victims were given and taken from Israeli soldiers, Israeli citizens, Palestinians, and foreign workers. The program ended in the 1990s, and there's no proof that anyone was purposefully killed for their organs. That would be quite a thing. So I don't know if this all means that the organ harvesting theory is, like the MIT officer says, confirmed. I think it needs a lot more context than that. But yes, no matter how embarrassing it may be to Israelis, and they did try to suppress the story from going to press, in the 1990s, there was a policy which allowed harvesting the organs of the dead, among the dead Palestinians, without permission from the deceased's families. I then, knowing this, began to see this claim more and more often. It was interesting how it was used and how it was stated, and that all became something of a tell. Which brings me to the main point of this spiel, an academic named Jasbir Poir. She teaches at Rutgers. She is the author of The Right to Maim, and teaching that book at Princeton caused an uproar. The Princeton Alumni Magazine quoted a rabbi, Gil Steinlauf, class of 1991, saying that Poir, quote, had previously and falsely accused the Israeli military of intentionally harming Palestinian children, harvesting Palestinians' organs, and other crimes reminiscent of classic anti-Semitic tropes stemming from the blood libel of the Middle Ages. All right, that's an accusation. We know some of the uh, facts behind it. What does the book Right to Maim say? Here I ran into a swirling vertex of verbiage that was itself not a war crime, but a thought crime. This is the description of Right to Maim from the Duke University Press. Drawing on a stunning array of theoretical and methodological frameworks, Poor uses the concept of debility, bodily injury and social exclusion brought on by economic and political factors to disrupt the category of disability. She shows how debility, disability, and capacity together constitute an assemblage that states used to control populations, Poir's analysis culminates in an interrogation of Israel's policy towards Palestinians, in which she outlines how Israel brings Palestinians into biopolitical being by designating them available for injury. It goes on to say that Poir offers a brilliant rethinking of Foucauldian biopolitics while showing how disability functions at the intersection of imperialism and racialized capital. You know, that's a little jargony. Let's hear Poir in her own words. This is from a YouTube talk titled Mass Debilitation and Algorithmic Governance. Uncertainty becomes a primary affective orientation, a folded into the flesh condition of possibility, an ontology of sorts. As Ezekiel comments, quote, uncertainty is this um, stochiastic or indeterminate part of statistical modeling, end quote. So the indeterminate is thus an ontological recoding of uncertainty that escapes the algorithmic governance of the bio-necro-political state. The moment when preemptive power that is meant to shape outcomes is exceeded by the emergent potentialities of those outcomes. That pretty much clears it up. But you know, sometimes I get a little dense and I can't really follow. So let's read from Princeton's course description of the class that taught the book. The Healing Humanities Decolonizing Trauma Studies from the Global South. Course description. 
introduces the transdisciplinary field of trauma studies by examining visions of humanity from the global south that prioritize alternative narratives and paradigms of healing individual and collective trauma. Reorienting healing as a decolonizing process enables students to repoliticize personal trauma as it intersects with global legacies of violence, war, racism, slavery, patriarchy, colonialism, orientalism, homophobia, ableism, capitalism, and extractivism. Yeah, I got it now. But no, it would be diminishing and possibly racist, patriarchal, colonialist, ableist, homophobic to dismiss Poir as simply maimology. To dismiss Poir or diminish Poir as simply a maimologist. She's way more than that. She is widely credited. She is hailed. She has won awards. They hold conferences where she's the keynote speaker because of her work on homonationalism. What is homonationalism? Is it how some countries are like each other? You know, homogeneous milk? It's not. Is it about how some nations are hospitable to homosexuality? Not that either. Let's once again hear Poir talk about homonationalism, thus saving us Princeton or even Rutgers tuition. Taking up further sexuality as assemblage and not um, identity, a strand of sexuality theory invested in thinking about assemblages and viral reproduction rather than reproductive futurism. The aforementioned call and response relay that continues to dominate the mainstream global queer versus queer of color non-Western queer logic of argumentation is one that often fails to interrogate the complex social field within which queer is being produced as a privilege signifier across these boundaries. You know, I was just saying that the other day. Ask my barber, and then someone else in the barber shop, I think it was Tony who was waiting for a fade, was like, yo, but what is homonationalism? And Lenny the barber cuts in, <laughs> pun, and he answers... It's not reliant on any singular definition. Um, and this is what this conference has really highlighted for me as well. It has created synergy across and through various political movements and struggles and has generated capacious theoretical paradigms as well as important debates about the relationships between academia and activists, theory and praxis. This prolific taking up of and moving around is what I would say the ultimate articulation of homonationalism as assemblage. Thank you. I mean, you can see why the whole barbershop burst into applause. Total mic drop moment. Okay, I'm going to tell you, if you didn't follow Lenny or Poir, there enough, what homonationalism is. In queer theory, it's the explanation for the supposed conundrum that some gay people are conservative. So, Milo Yiannopoulos, how can he exist? Oh, homonationalism. He's a homonationalist. Or twinks for Trump. How could that possibly be? I, Mike Pesca, I would say, well, it's because gay people can have stupid political opinions like anyone else. Or to separate it from Trump and not to be uh, overly derogatory. It's that gay people can have conservative political opinions. Or not even conservatives. What Poir would consider conservative. Just believing in immigration laws, for example. Whereas a queer theorist might find it hard to square the idea that LGBTQ plus people are oppressed and should be in favor of liberation on the one hand, but sometimes they're not. Here's how homonationalism shows up in the debate over Israel. Someone says, I'm a queer for Palestine. And then someone else might say, you know, if you're actually a queer in Palestine, Hamas would throw you off a building. 
Israel, that other person might say, is certainly the most gay-friendly country in the Middle East, and Tel Aviv is one of the most gay-friendly cities in the world. Okay, so all that, that counter-argument to the queer for Palestine, all that's homonationalism. It's citing evidence of gay-friendliness to advance a nationalistic, inherently oppressive agenda. And not just oppressive, but colonialist, orientalist, extractivist, patriarchal. But don't take my word for it. You were waiting for her, bringing her back. Here's Professor Poir. As an analytic, it most forcefully attends to apprehending the consequences of the successes of LGBT liberal rights movements. As such, I think of it more as a structuring facet of modernity rather than an aberration or a liberalism gone bad. To quote John Lovitz playing Michael Dukakis in an old SNL sketch, how am I losing to this guy? Meaning, how are those ideas, sorry, those assemblages of facets of syllabic intentionality, how are they winning the debate? How are they winning the culture war? How are they riding high in academia? How are they shaping millions of young minds as to their wisdom? Even if not the exact words, which I cannot parse, but even if those aren't the phrases being echoed, those ideas have absolutely taken hold. I worked very hard to figure out what it all meant. And then I figured it out. And I am not sure if I was better off not knowing. I love ideas. I thrill to being challenged by concepts, useful concepts. But those ideas are less ideas than they are something like opaque hints at ideas meant to convey sophistication, but they're just such a jumbled argo to mark in-groups and out-groups. I don't know. Maybe I'm just a dumb guy. Maybe I'm benighted. Maybe I'm missing something. But if I have to listen to much more, I am going to pluck my own eyes out. And yes, then you officially have my permission to give them to someone who could do something useful with them. Because I simply can't understand the appeal and ascendance of what I'm witnessing. The Gist is produced by Corey Warrow with Joel Patterson as the senior producer. Michelle Pasquez is in charge of special projects for Peachfish Productions. If you would like to give the gift of a gist, go to subscribe.mikepesca.com slash gifts. You give a six-month or year-long Pesca Plus or ad-free subscription. Use the promo code BELGIUM at checkout for 11% off. Even if you want to subscribe all regular, you too can use the promo code BELGIUM, 11% at checkoff until January 2nd, I think. Oomperoo, jeeperoo, dooperoo, and thanks for listening. Hold up. 